I'd like to let you know that Aussie Meted is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. G'day and welcome to the Aussie Med Ed, the Australian Medical Education Podcast, where we get to interview specialists in a variety of medical areas, asking their opinion on their certain conditions, obtaining their insight into how they diagnose and treat that condition. In these COVID times, it's a way of replacing the relaxed discussion around the hospital by allowing the listener to put forward questions to be answered or addressed on their behalf. I hope you enjoy the whole program. Welcome once again to Aussie Med Ed. And today we're going to speak to Gail Severa. She's an Australian-trained orthopaedic surgeon specialising in keyhole and general foot and ankle surgery. Having completed a dedicated fellowship focusing solely on gaining further experience in minimally invasive and advanced reconstructive techniques of the foot and ankle, she now consults at the Anzac Suites at Ashford, Western Hospital, Modbury and Salisbury. She also manages the Department of the Foot and Ankle Surgery at the Northern Adelaide Local Health Network and she enjoys teaching registrars on how to manage foot and ankle conditions in the public system. Today she's going to talk about her approach to foot and ankle conditions in general. I'm Gavin Nyman, an orthopaedic surgeon based in Adelaide, and also a senior lecturer at the University of Adelaide involved in orthopaedic musculoskeletal teaching. I hope you enjoy the podcast series, and if so, please feel free to subscribe, give us a like or review, or tell your friends about it. We look forward to having you listen to our podcast series, and we hope you find it enjoyable. I'd like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast has been produced and pay my respects to the elders, both past and present. Well, I'd now like to start by introducing Gail Severa. Welcome, Gail. Well, Gail, it's great to have you on Aussie Med Ed. Thank you very much for coming on to talk to us about your approach to assessing and treating those patients with foot and ankle conditions. Thanks, thanks, Gavin. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, I think the approach to, to any foot and ankle condition still remains pretty basic. It's what we learned in med school. As always, it's important to take a thorough history. I think the key points in history still stand. With foot and ankle specifically, it's important to rule out a certain key medical conditions, underlying medical conditions that can impact both the condition that the patient presents with as well as the outcome of any treatment that you might offer them. So inflammatory disorders, for instance, rheumatoid arthritis, they can present with very early signs in the feet. Uh, a history of uh, diabetes, renal disorders, peripheral neuropathies, they all impact the feet significantly. When it comes to medications, it is important to assess if the if patients have been on long-term blood thinners, long-term steroids. Even the newer groups of anti-diabetic medications, for instance, do impact your treatment, especially if you're offering them surgery. But when you're inspecting the foot, it is important to look at both feet. I think people forget that. So a patient arrives and they complain of pain in one foot and quite often you'll notice people just focused on one foot. So I think it's important. I usually expose both feet up to mid-calves or at least down to the knee. It's important to walk patients. We always forget that, but it is critical. Plenty of examples of where, you know, registrars called me in to see a patient and they haven't walked the patient and we've picked up that they've got an equinus deformity of the foot or they have a limb length discrepancy because they've disguised it quite nicely with a long skirt. So it's really important to look at the foot and look at both feet. Looking at both feet is important because you can pick up things like bilateral fetal edema. So quite often I get patients sent to me with foot pain when actually they've got issues, foot pain and swelling, when actually they've got a swelling of both feet and pre-tibial pitting edema right up to close to their knees. 
So it's important to pick that up. And if you look at both feet, then they're both swollen. And an ultrasound says there's no effusion within the ankle, but all the fluids around the ankle, then that possibly is coming from another area not localized to the foot and ankle. And the importance of looking before you even touch the foot. I had a recent case where a case was referred to me by a spinal surgeon. He said he'd ruled out pain uh, referred from the back and he thought it was a complex neuropathy in the foot. When I examined this patient's foot, she had a big lump of bone in the middle of her foot, so in the midfoot area. And when I examined her foot and she was Tinell's positive, right on top of that lump, so her neuropathy, so-called neuropathy or neuropathic pain was arising because she had an osteophyte under there that was tenting both the superficial perineal nerve and the deep perineal nerve. So that's, I think, a good recent example that comes to mind of, of, of really first looking at the foot generally and looking at both feet. On palpation, I think I wouldn't say much because feet can be difficult to palpate. I think examining for strength of muscles like the tibialis posterior tendon, tibialis anterior tendon, and also examining for ankle range of motion is important. I wouldn't go palpating every joint in the foot because that's difficult to do and it does take time too. And the yield is, is not as great as just examining for range of motion and muscle strength in general. Certainly for the examining for gastrocnemius and Achilles tightness is important because it does impact a lot of conditions in the foot, especially people that present with plantar fasciitis and forefoot pain. Well, that's excellent. That's a few pearls of wisdoms on inspection and palpation around the foot and ankle. What conditions are you looking out to assess for when you assess a patient? I generally tend to break up the patients into either elective presentations or traumatic presentations. If we start off with elective presentations, what are common elective presentations for a foot and ankle patient? One of the most common cases that I see are a forefoot pain or metatarsalgia, and this, this encompasses the whole bunion hamatoe complex. But the causes of forefoot pain can be both primary and secondary. Primary causes involve an imbalance of pressure distribution in the foot. For instance, if the first ray is not functioning properly because of, there's a bunion deformity or is it very stiff because of arthritis of the first joint or hamatose, then you can get an imbalance of the pressure distribution across all the metatarsal heads, leading to secondary callus formation and pain. So the treatment in these conditions would be to offload the area or to correct the bunion or to correct the arthritic first MTP joint by initially offering them orthotics in the shoes and certainly that can give them some pain relief almost immediately but long-term pain relief would be offering them surgery for correction of these both arthritic conditions as well as bunions. Now secondary metatarsalgia which is secondary causes of forefoot pain there's a long list of medical causes that can cause this secondary metatarsalgia and those could include things like gout, systemic disorders like rheumatoid. So when I see these patients with forefoot pain I've got to, again, look at them holistically. I've got to look, again, reiterating history and examining them systemically as well. So it's important to rule out gout, rheumatoid arthritis, neurological disorders, things like Morton's neuroma, tarsal tunnel syndrome. All these can be encompassed into the secondary metatarsalgia group. Uh, there's a smaller group called the yeah the iatrogenic uh, metatarsalgia group. Well, well, these are due to failed hallux valgus surgery group. Right, uh, the ones that have had a shortened metatarsal, first metatarsal due to previous surgery, for instance. And uh, this can happen either during a fusion or even during bunion correction. And that's a whole other group group to deal with. On the bunion point of view, so the, the bunions are a common thing which probably we won't see as much of in the public hospital setting. How common are they and what is the main cause of a bunion? Yeah, the bunions, bunions are fairly common. And again, because of the missed population, it's hard to put a number on them. But the number one risk factor rather for bunions is genetic factors. Poor women wearing high heel shoes get blamed, you know, wearing high heels all their life. 
and, and getting bunions. But the number one risk factor is genetics that are responsible for 70% of bunions. Anyone in your family, if your mother had bunions, there's a very, very high chance that you're going to get them no matter what your shoe wear. So the, the risk factor is genetic. And I clearly, you see men coming in with bunions and they have a strong, strong family history of having had bunions in the family. So I think footwear certainly accelerates your risk of developing bunions if you have a strong family history, but it is not the isolated cause of bunions, certainly. As I understand it, it's basically they're born with a preponderance to have a wide splaying of the metatarsis, and that leads to metatarsis primus varus? Yes, I think there's the increased distal metatarsal angle or ligamentous laxity. So, so uh, you know, young people that are born are very lax, you, you'll notice that they do have bunions more often than ones that don't, and certainly more flat-footed. So if you've got a, a pest planus, then you're more likely to get a bunion deformity, and again, that's related to the genetics as well as the weight-bearing pattern of the foot, so the mechanics there. Of course, the, the medical conditions come in there as well. You know, people with rheumatoid arthritis, cerebral palsy, they also have a risk of developing bunions, again, just because of the imbalance. In, in rheumatoids, it's a destruction of soft tissues. In cerebral palsy, it's, it's imbalance, uh, the muscles, the dynamic imbalance in the muscles that give them the, the hallux valgus deformity. So uh, the list is long, but high risk of getting bunions and a strong family history. Now, the, the hammer toes, which is the hyperextension of the MTP joint of the second and third toes with the flexion of the, the distal phalanges, you often see that associated with bunions, but they can occur on their own just secondary to the lax joints themselves from the synovitis? Correct. So the most common cause is overcrowding of toes. So when you do develop a bunion deformity, there is overcrowding. So essentially, the distal aspect of the big toe starts to impinge into the, the space of the lesser toes. And that's where over time they get pushed into this hyperextension deformity just because of overcrowding. But you're right, destruction of soft tissue as well can be a local soft tissue, can be a secondary cause. For instance, if in the very athletic population, they can have damage to the plantar plate and that can give them a secondary hematoma from trauma to the plantar plate. So a tear in the plantar plate, an acute tear, that hasn't been attended to and then develops a, a chronic tear or degenerative changes in the plantar plate with associated damage to the tetasophalangeal joint capsule can lead to an isolated hamato. Certainly, they do have isolated pathology. But it's important in these cases to examine the patient in a weight-bearing stance. You'd be amazed at how often you, you know I get sent a case of an isolated hamato, but when you get the patient to stand up, you'll notice that they do have a bunion deformity or a hallux valgus interphalangeus, meaning not a big, a good-going bunion deformity, but that they have distal interphalangeus. So the distal aspect of the big toe is pushing into the second toe and giving them hamatoe deformity. So again, boils down to it does boil down to a good examination in the standing up position where that better replicates what, what they have to go through in footwear. So unless you're walking barefooted quite a lot in footwear, you, you get a different pattern of, of crowding in the foot. And I presume also when your medical student's examining the foot and ankle, it's important to look at the sole of the foot as well for calluses and other deformities on the sole? Absolutely. So talking about metatarsalgia that I spoke about earlier, if you look at the pattern of calluses, for instance, with bunion deformities, you can also get something called the Taylor's bunion, you know, the bunionette deformity. And you notice the pattern of calluses around a very broad forefoot. And it's important to 
treat a roll, not just treat the bunion, but treat the bunion neck deformity as well. And you'll notice a pattern of calluses over the over the sole of the foot, over the forefoot, which will tell you that the break in the weight-bearing parabola of the metatarsals. And it's important to understand that. So podiatrists look at it quite often because they've got to offload those areas quite specifically if, if you're managing the patient non-operatively. Alternatively, you examine the patient and you compare it to the x-rays to look at the parabola of the metatarsals. And you'll notice sometimes people have an especially long second toe that can give them that callus deformity under the second toe. And that's called a Morton-type foot where they have an excessively long second toe. Now, that's not a problem if it's not painful, but if you've developed hamatoe secondarily with a large callus underneath, it could be because you have a long second metatarsal relative to the first and the other metatarsals, and that needs to be addressed. That's different to a Morton's neuroma, of course, which is the nerve being... And is it from the nerve being trapped between the metatarsals that causes the neuroma, or do they occur primarily? Oh, there's various causes again now. So, so we're jumping to another. That was a Morton's type foot we were talking about, a second, long second toe, a Morton's neuroma. Yeah, a, a very, very complex topic. But essentially, the causes are many. Could be repetitive from entrapment of the nerve, for instance, in runners. Runners can develop it because the nerve gets entrapped at the bifurcation or the distal fibers in the interdigital space. Sometimes the nerves can be primarily inflamed, like in inflammatory conditions. Or sometimes you can get a pure neuroma. So a primary neuroma, it's a combination of things. Because it's so difficult to define and to diagnose, the whole you know, presentation or the, uh, the varied presentation, sorry, have been classed under a bursal neuronal complexes. So now we don't call them isolated bursas or neuromas just because they can all coexist. So you can get a bursa with a neuroma and, and they quite commonly coexist. They will call bursal neuronal presentations now. And you quite often have to address both. So a primary neuroma is common, but quite often it is associated with inflammation of the bursa and secondary entrapment of the nerve. I'd like to let you know that Aussie Med Ed is supported by HealthShare. HealthShare is a digital health company that provides solutions for patients, GPs and specialists across Australia. Two of HealthShare products are Better Consult, a pre-consultation questionnaire that allows GPs to know a patient's agenda before the consult begins, as well as HealthShare's Specialist Referrals Directory, a specialist and allied health directory helping GPs find the right specialist. So the treatment for those neuromas is in the past has been excision of the neuroma. Is that still the treatment? And does, it, does the patient get a little bit disconcerned about the numbness that they might experience at their distal branches supplies? Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. So most of the patients that, and I mean nine out of ten, so ninety percent of the patients that get referred to me with a Morton's neuroma on ultrasound don't have a neuroma on an MRI scan. So that goes to prove that the whole bursal neuroma complex, the existence of, of you know, a mass between the toes that gets picked up as a neuroma on an ultrasound, but really there aren't many neuromas. So for a true neuroma. Patients are quite often in quite uh, incapacitating pain. So, yes, you do warn them that they'll have a permanent area of numbness between the toes when the neuroma is excised, but it doesn't seem to bother them as much as the pain that they had from the neuroma. So you rarely get someone coming back to you complaining that the area between the toes is numb and that's bothering them more than the pain that they had. I've never had a patient come back, actually. But, yes, if it's a true neuroma and you excise the nerve, then they're left with permanent numbness. But given the area around the toes has a lot of cross-distribution from 
across innovation from adjacent nerves, it's hard for them to, to actually even define the patch of numbness. So they go, oh, it just feels a little lighter than the other toes. I've quite, uh, quite often asked these patients coming back. It doesn't seem to disturb them as much. So it's not a very defined, it's not a very sharply defined area of numbness. And I think it's because of that that it doesn't bother them a lot because it's not a sharp, well-defined area of numbness. It's a general sort of decreased area of sensitivity more than sharp area of numbness. So no, they're not bothered by it too much. Now thinking about presentations, I was thinking about different elective conditions and I myself wondered about whether the most common elective painful condition might be plantar fasciitis generally. Well, it seems to be more common in the in the, the public sector because I manage patients across both sectors. I think it would make up about 10 to 20% of my uh, private practice and about 40% of my public practice, I'd say, if you were to put a number on it. So the patients that present to me in public are more overweight. Quite often, they're, they're diabetic, difficulty controlling both their diabetes and their weight. And those are the ones that present to me in private. The ones in the private sector, the patients that I get coming to me in plantar fasciitis are more the overactive uh, lady in her 50s that does a lot of Zumba and presents one morning with a painful foot that hasn't gone away for a couple of months. So uh, it, it's a mix, but I'd say a, a lot lesser than I see in public uh, plantar fasciitis. And the patients are obviously concerned about the spur that they, often they find on an X-ray or an ultrasound, but that's not really the main issue, is it? I believe it's more the plantar fascia being painful. It, it almost never is. I've X-rayed my foot and I have a spur and it's never been painful. So the spur is just an incidental finding. Quite often patients get told that by their GP or you've got a spur at the back of your heel or you've got a spur under your heel and that's causing the problem. And it's important to explain to them that the spur is almost always an incidental finding. Now, on the back of the heel around the Achilles area, the spur can be a result of a repetitive traction injury to that area. So it's part of the enthesopathy, as, as they call it, around that area. And, and that's a different sort of spur. You do address that spur if you're addressing personal Achilles tendinosis through surgery. But quite often, if you x-ray a foot, you see a lot of spurring even on the back of the heel around the Achilles, and patients don't complain of pain. So it is not the cause of pain. It can be due to the pathology occurring around that area, but it is certainly not the cause of pain. Well, going back to the plantar fasciitis, what are the main treatments for it? Is it purely physiotherapy or injections or surgery have a role to play? Yeah, that's a good question. You certainly don't operate on these patients straight away. You certainly do offer them physiotherapy, but there's a lot more that you can offer them. Good physiotherapy program with eccentric stretching can be supplemented. People offer them shockwave therapy. I offer my patients CRP, which is platelet-rich plasma, where a component of your blood, where your blood is spun down into its components, and platelets, which we know are rich in platelet-derived growth factors, are injected locally into the area. I've had reasonable results with CRP. I certainly don't inject steroids around that area. People, Some people do, but I don't personally. I don't believe in injecting steroids around that area. I think it needs a more repair rather than just trying to suppress the inflammation around that area. So hence the choice of PRP. Certainly orthotics. So it's important, again, to examine the shape and type of foot that a patient has. So if they're flat-footed patients, so with test planus, they can have something called a heel pain triad. So that's important to pick up. The heel pain triad is plantar fasciitis, tic post dysfunction, and tarsal tunnel syndrome. So I think it's important to pick up. I think plantar fasciitis is not as simple as, oh, I've just got pain in my heel. The heel pain, differential diagnosis with heel pain is vast, it's long, and it's very, very important to examine these patients specifically for nerve problems as well as to assess their tendons around that area as well. So again, the heel pain triad, 
got to assess them for the foot shape and supply them with adequate orthotics to support the foot so that you can relieve the traction injury on the posterior tibial nerves. And generally, their plantar fasciitis improves over time and certainly their foot's more supported, so it relieves the pain around the nerve as well. Now, with the plantar fasciitis, if you they don't respond to the injections and the physiotherapy program prior, there is surgical options for that? Yeah, there is surgical options, but you have to remember that the success rate around the world reported in all literature is around 70%. And the operation is, and I, I do offer to patients, is where you do an endoscopic release of the plantar fascia. They don't make any big cuts around the sole of the foot. You have two keyhole cuts on either side of the heel, and you release the medial band of the plantar fascia. So you release around 20-30% of the medial band of the plantar fascia, and you release the lateral band. In fact, quite often the complications from these procedures are you can get overloading of the lateral column of the foot and this pain is hard to get rid of. And so uh, the operation is not without complications. And I think you, you have to be very cautious with off- offering these patients surgery. And generally, if you manage them properly non-operatively, supplemented with a PRP injection, they do settle. It takes a while, but they do settle. Now, you mentioned tip post dysfunction. That's an interesting one. It's the acquired flat foot deformity, which you see often in middle age, I believe, and it's more common if you're overweight, I understand. That's quite common, I believe. That is common. So patients do present with varying sort of degrees of tip post dysfunction. We have, we have classifications that we use, but early tip post dysfunction with an acquired flat foot deformity and pain around the medial aspect of the ankle can be managed quite well with orthotics again and immediately restraining the foot in a boot. These conditions are common because we are dealing with an overweight population. So certainly a raised BMI with a flat foot is a high risk factor for developing dysfunction of the tip post, as we call it. But over time, it is a progressive condition. So once it starts off, you progressively get an injury of the tip post tendon followed by an injury of the the spring ligament. And it's well known that if you don't arrest the progress of the deformity, then it is harder and harder to control this condition. Were the initial symptoms of pain along the tip post tendon or was it the actual deformity? The the ones that you get early have pain, so they they are always almost always associated with a flat foot deformity, so a base plate of algus. But they do present yes with the ones that you do catch early. You present with they present with pain along the medial aspect of the ankle and foot around the insertion into the navicular tuberosity of the tip post tendon. Now, if the condition is ignored they almost suddenly become pain-free because the tendon ruptures. So sometimes they report hearing a pop and they go, oh, my pain's all better now. And that's because the tendon's actually fully ruptured, but my deformity is getting worse. And that's the progression of the condition. So if you catch them early with just pain, you can put them in a boot or a good solid brace and limit how much they do, rest them certainly, and that can prevent the tipos tendon rupturing. But once it ruptures, their pain improves, but their deformity continues to worsen. You mentioned Achilles tendonitis prior. That presents with pain at the back of the heel, I believe. Do they always go on to present to or develop ruptures as well, the Achilles tendons, or are they predisposing factors to it, or are they purely incidental and separate to an acute rupture? Well, that, that's an interesting one because I've had a case recently. They they are, they certainly can be predisposed like a risk factor for rupture, but not everyone that ruptures has you know an Achilles tendinopathy prior to that. And you do ask them quite often in history. And it is reported that people with inflammatory Achilles tendinosis can rupture their tendons. But it's not commonly seen. I have probably this year in practice, I've only seen one. 
quite often the cause for uh, an Achilles tendon rupture is an acute eccentric contraction of the muscle. And that remains as the largest, the highest risk factor for uh, rupture. Certainly tendinopathy is a smaller group, but you don't commonly see it. These people are less active and they do have, and we're talking about insertional Achilles tendinopathy. Again, when you're talking about insertional, uh, about Achilles tendinopathy, you have insertional versus non-insertional. The non-insertional with inflammation around two to six centimeters from uh, the insertion into the back of the heel, that is more common in overuse sort of type of injuries in athletes. Whereas the insertional Achilles tendinopathy with pain at the back of the heel with associated spurs and the Haglund's deformity, that's more common with the middle-aged population, which is less active and it's due to degenerative changes around the tendon around that area. So you're talking about two different types here, but your question was about rupture and it does predispose them to rupture. But like I said, the large portion of patients that you see with acute Achilles tendon ruptures are not ones that have had Achilles tendinopathy. Now, that's a beautiful segue into the traumatic conditions that occur. And obviously, Achilles tendon ruptures are relatively common. In the past, we used to operate on a lot of them. Are they still operate on as much, or is it more conservative management nowadays? Again, I do operate on lots of them. I think I operate on almost 90% of them. It depends on what, it still depends on which part of the Achilles uh, ruptures. So, if it is, you know, within, say, two to five centimeters from the insertion, you do operate on them because we've got good minimally invasive techniques now where you don't have to make a big cut on the back of the heel. You make a one centimeter cut and you anchor this repair into bone uh, using bioabsorbable anchors so that the construct is strong. And so it's, it's not a faster healing guarantee, but it's certainly a stronger construct. So I believe the risk of re-rupture is a lot lower than if it was managed non-operatively. We stu- still do manage people non-operatively. If it's a muscular tendon, it's a, a, a tear that's higher up, and these are higher to stitch because you're trying to put stitches through meat, and these ones are better managed with a non-operative program. Uh, but I still operate on a lot of distal Achilles tendon ruptures because these are young people that are wanting to go back to sport, and they want their tendon to heal back at the correct length. And it's hard to wear a boot 24-7 for three months. It is hard. So compliance is a big issue in these patients and they're better off having surgery. What's the difference in the rehab? Do you still use Aquinas plasters for both groups? Uh, I tend to, to not use plasters anymore. They, they do get sent to me in a plaster. So when they first present to the emergency department, they get put into an Aquinas back slab. But when they come to me, I even after surgery, I use a boot with some heel raises. That can be sequentially easily removed in the post-operative period. So depending on the type of rupture, the partial rupture, I certainly rehab them quicker. But if it was complete rupture with no intact fibers at all, I go a little slower with my rehab. But generally, they're in a boot for about six weeks. And then with heel raises, and then they gradually come out. They reduce the heel wedges by one centimeter over the next following month and finally walk flat-footed. Look, that probably brings on to the most common thing we'd see in the public hospital would be the ankle fractures and the traumatic inversion injuries. I presume ankle fractures make up a large portion of your practice as well. The, the most common ankle fractures that I get sent to are uh, the, the more unstable ones with syndesmosis. So the ankle sprains, talking about ankle sprains, we now classify them into high ankle sprains, which uh, involve the syndesmosis and low ankle sprains that involve the ATFL, so the anterior talofibular ligament, and syndesmosis is the AITFL, which is the anterior inferior tibiofibular ligament. So it's important to recognize the high ankle sprains, which used to be missed a lot. 
So they can be associated, as we know, with ankle fractures. Alternatively, though, they quite often not associated with ankle fractures. So it's important, again, to examine these patients properly if they're sore around the anterior syndesmosis and not just around the distal fibula and the ATFL. And you've got to think about a syndesmosis injury, uh, certainly, and just look at the pattern of swelling around the, the ankle. They've got tenderness around the deltoid as well and bruising, bruising around the deltoid. Then certainly you've got to think about a more serious injury. The Ottawa rules, which the medical students will learn and a very good guide towards in, in investigating an ankle sprain, involves the use of an x-ray. Does, they, does that include or does that pick up these high ankle sprains, the syndesmosis injuries? The Ottawa rules are a guide. I think, uh, and that that's where we leave them, because if I think you, you've got a serious ankle sprain that certainly satisfies the Ottawa ankle rules, you are able to pick up these injuries. So inability to weight bear, for instance, if you've got a syndesmosis injury. But again, they're, they're a guide. So you've got to think outside the square, outside the box. And if you see someone that hasn't settled, has come to you two or three weeks down the track, and you've got them to walk and their pain hasn't settled, then you've got to investigate further. The order of uh, guidelines are more for emergency department physicians or GPs that see patients for the first time and patients eventually end up with you. I think I rarely the Ottawa rules. I think they miss a lot of posterior malleolar fractures. That So, for instance, if you've got a web B ankle fracture and undisplaced posterior malleolar fracture, quite often you might be able to wait there and not have much pain. You could have some tenderness around the, the fibula which would then trigger the Ottawa rules and you'd get an x-ray. But quite often there's, uh, I'm not sure you've heard about the CrossFAT trial where they got all these Weber B ankle fractures to be managed uh, non-operatively and walking on them straight away. But I feel this missed a lot of the unstable ankle fractures with posterior malleolar fractures that were picked up uh, quite late or not picked up by our registrars that went, oh, every Weber B ankle fracture should be managed non-operatively. But then in the public system, it's quite late sometimes when these come back. Not with much displacement, but you can you notice in hindsight that they've had a posterior malleolar fracture. And this is a syndesmosis injury. So they may not have an issue in four to six weeks, but their syndesmosis has now not healed at the right tension. The PITFL has not healed at the right tension. And this could give them long-term problems. We certainly haven't examined these people and there's, there's not much research around that. But I think we've got to be very cautious in using the audible guidelines for managing these patients. It's an initial screening tool, and that's how we have to literally use them as a screening tool and, and, and as a guide. It's not necessarily a management tool. Yeah, certainly, I know from you know my experience that one of the hardest fractures to pick up are the ankle fractures. You know, often you can pick up other ones quite clinically, but the ankle ones can be quite deceptive. Uh, moving on to other inversion injuries, I believe the forefoot also needs to be considered when you sustain one, either the base of the fifth metatarsal or the midfoot. The one that bothers me a lot when I go windsurfing and try and put my foot in the, in the straps, <laughs> I'm always worried I'm going to get a Liz Frank injury, for instance, which is important to know about. Perhaps you could yes. enlighten me a bit on those two types of injuries. Yeah, yes, certainly with an inversion injury, to finish off the topic on inversion injuries, you can... If you if you examine the foot properly, you can pick up fifth, base of fifth metatarsal fractures, and those are important. Those are quite commonly. So we talk about the occult or missed injuries in the foot and base of fifth metatarsal fractures. When you're so focused on the ankle, base of fifth metatarsal fractures are quite often missed. And so examining the foot or x-raying the rest of the foot and not just the ankle or paying attention to the, the fifth metatarsal uh, with a combination of examination and x-ray techniques will help you pick up those fractures. Certainly with inversion injuries or severe inversion injuries, it's important to also look at the tail and neck, for instance. You can get undisplaced fractures around that area as well as the 
anterior process of the calcaneus. So these are the missed occult injuries in the foot, and that's that's another topic for, for another day. But those injuries to look for with the list frank, uh, certainly or midfoot injuries, you can get avulsion fractures around the midfoot, and people treat those as a small avulsion injuries, but they're serious injuries because at some stage those joints have subluxated out of joint and turned back or reduced back into joint. But the capsule now has been permanently damaged and it's cars up and it can give you uh, arthritis, certainly from shearing off the two joints that's involved in dislocating a joint. With the Lisfranc injuries, I think it's important. There's various types. I won't go into details of those, but the more serious ones that you see, are, you know, ones that, are, that you get after high-speed motorvehicle accidents. But the more subtle Lisfrancs you can get during sporting injuries where the interosseous component of the list rank ligament is, is injured. And these can be hard to pick up. You, you need a combination of MRI scans as well as a series of weight-bearing x-rays and comparative bilateral weight-bearing x-rays. And certainly, you have to go back, go, go back to your basic examination skills. If someone's sore in the list rank interval and their first real medial column is unstable, then you've got to think about list rank injuries. Certainly, if they've got the telltale sign of plantar ecchymosis, so you've got, again, looking at the sole of the foot, you brought this up earlier, but looking at the sole of the foot. So if you see the telltale sign of bruising around the medial arch of the foot, that is a sign of a significant interosseous ligament injury, and those can be managed. So again, it depends on how unstable they are. If you want to manage them non-operatively, the patient has to be non-weight-bearing for a period of six to eight weeks. But quite often, because they're, they're serious injuries and this is the weight-bearing portion of the foot, I think it's important to consider surgery more often than, than non-operative management in this area. How closely do you involve a podiatrist in your management of patients? Are they an integral part of your management process? Definitely. I mean, talking about Liz Franks, and if we're still talking about midfoot injuries, all my Liz Frank patients get referred to a podiatrist because, for instance, just talking about Liz Franks, but I know you're asking me about podiatrists in general, but talking about Liz Franks, after a list frank injury, your arch is almost always affected in some way, shape, or form. So your medial arch, and so using custom orthotics, quite often I tell my patients they, they can't afford to walk barefooted because this arch, once, once a ligament's injured, it only heals back with scar tissue, as we know. You, you rarely get, well, you don't get the original ligament back. You get some form of scar tissue that can imitate or mimic the original ligament, but you're relying on strength of scar tissue to support that part of your foot. So it's important to have orthotics and I think really orthotics for the rest of your life. I use a lot of braces from the podiatrist, but I think podiatrist certainly supplements my examination findings and my non-operative management because they have various tools to examine patients that, that we don't have as orthopods and I think they do a better gait assessment than we do quite often and yeah, they certainly supplement my practice to a very you know, high degree. Significant involvement of allied health is always very important. It's the same in hand surgery with the hand therapist. Last question is the one for me is the the calcaneal fracture. They're always a a dread when you see one because I believe that result in a lot of pain afterwards and can lead to quite significant deformity. They're still quite common and what are the mainstays of treatments for those nowadays? Yeah, but they, they are uh, fairly common and most common mechanism is someone falling from a height or jumping off the, the back of a youth and these, these are common. The outcome depends on the type of fracture. Usually the extra-articular fractures do better than the intra-articular fractures. The intra-articular fractures, as you know, 
are high risk for developing subtalar arthritis. And those are the ones that generally go on to have early problems. Uh, it's a stable joint, the subtalar joint, but subtle movements on uneven ground can irritate and annoy this joint to the extent that it develops persistent synovitis and signs of inflammation in the sinus tarsi region as well as around the joint that can make every step difficult and painful uh, to walk on. So I think these injuries, are they are a difficult group to treat. I do manage the intraarticular ones that are displaced with surgery. So we do have use a, a small sinus tarsi approach and you slide low-profile plate after correction of the three main deformities involved commonly in these calcaneal fractures. The foot can get stuck, the heel can get stuck in bearers, so you've got to correct that. You've got to pull it out to length and you certainly have to elevate any depressed fra- fragments of joint. But these patients are difficult. They generally have wound problems. You've got to watch them closely. But the extra-articular ones tend to do better, certainly, because their joint remains or their joint escapes damage. Thank you very much, Gary. We've gone through a lot of different conditions and I really appreciate you touching on a few of those for, to whet the appetite of our medical students and GPs listening. I really appreciate your time and effort today and I'd really like to thank you once again for coming on Aussie Med Ed. Thank you very much, Dr. Gail Severa. Yes, thank you. Thanks, Gavin, for having me. Thank you. The information provided to you today is designed to complement the information provided to you in your local region and should supplement your readings and teachings in that area. Please don't take it as the only way of treating this condition or assessing a condition, but really as one of various ways of assessing these conditions. Please be also be aware that the information provided today is really just general medical advice and isn't designed to actually be a source of medical information regarding your particular condition. Remember to consult your specialist or medical practitioner if you have concerns about a condition raised in this podcast. Well, thanks once again for listening to our podcast, Aussie Med Ed or the Australian Medical Education Podcast. I really enjoy hosting this podcast. I hope you find it useful to hear a pragmatic approach to everyday conditions. If you have any questions or information you want to ask about us, or you'd like to put a suggestion for a topic, please don't hesitate to email us at gavin at ed-ed.com.au. Once again, I hope you've enjoyed listening to it and we look forward to hosting it next fortnight when we introduce a new topic. Thank you.